This is part three. The piece of paper that makes all the difference how living together before marriage diminishes life after the vows. There'll be one more next week, by far the most important study in the series, where we will look at, in a way I've never done in this church, uh, the biblical principles that explain the statistical data. There's a place for statistical data. What we've been looking at, generally speaking, in these first three uh, messages comes from secular authorities. It's not from the church. It's not from religious books or Bible uh, seminaries or anything else. It's just from sociology departments and psychology departments and, and uh, cultural studies departments. And there's a place for looking at, here's what's happening. That's what we've been doing. That's all science can study. All science can do is study what's happening. You need God's word to go back and say, now, now let me show you why this is happening this way. And so that's how we're going to finish up uh, next week. After that on Sunday night, I want to be looking at the subject. Atheists are made, not born. Maybe you know of someone who has renounced the faith and now calls them himself or herself either atheist or agnostic. I want to look at how that happens and why it happens and what the Bible says about that. The three or four messages in that series. I've bitten off a lot this fall. My wife thinks I'm out of my mind. But it's been... Uh, I hope you've liked it because it, I've enjoyed doing it. It's been good for me to study it all. Tonight. Making sure the minister isn't cheating you out of something precious at your wedding ceremony. Wherever you're married and whoever marries you, this church, this staff, another church, another minister, make sure the minister isn't cheating you out of something precious at your wedding ceremony. Instead of an opening text, let me read to you. This is from our marriage vows here at the church. Dear friends, we have come together in the sight of God and in the presence of these witnesses to join together Don and Rini. In the bonds of holy matrimony according to the ordinance of God, the custom of the Christian church and the law of this land, and to pray on their behalf the blessing of God. Marriage is an honorable and holy estate instituted by God, sanctioned and honored by Christ's presence at the marriage in Cana of Galilee and likened by the Apostle Paul to the mystical union which exists between Christ and his church. It was ordained of God as the foundation and bond of family life for the mutual help and comfort of husband and wife and for the welfare of the state. Marriage is therefore not to be entered by anyone lightly or thoughtlessly, but thoughtfully, reverently in the fear of God. We, we've been considering the faulty logic behind the astronomical rise of cohabiting relationships. I was surprised. I didn't know this until I started doing a little research on it. Did you know that in 1970, so I'm not going back to, you know, the dirty 30s or something. In 1970, I couldn't find a Canadian stat for this, so forgive me for using an American statistic, but I don't think we're probably all that different. In 1970, 
in all 50 states, it was illegal for a man to live with a woman, common law. In my lifetime, since in 1970, it was against the law to cohabit with a member of the opposite sex. Which just, which just is stunning to me. And, and the thing is, nobody in 1970 was complaining that these laws were discriminatory or unjust or unfair. It was the norm. It was the common understanding. The common, I'm not talking Christian, I'm talking about the common morality of the day. According to statistics, well over half of all marriages, Canada, U.S., well over half of all marriages are now preceded by cohabitation. And the idea behind it is that there's a natural deselection. What I mean is over time, potential marriage partners are discovered or eliminated, unreliable partners eliminated, and eventually Mr. and Mrs. Wright will emerge and all will end um, happily ever after. And, and we've spent two weeks so far studying all the available evidence that this is not even close to the truth. That, that Brad and Angelina don't live happily after, ever after as husband and wife just because they cohabited for ten years. The authors of the National Survey of Families and Households conclude this, quote, After reviewing all available studies, the, that's a typo in your notes, the enhanced risk of marital disruption following cohabitation, so the idea that the marriage is more likely to end in divorce if it's preceded by cohabitation, that is beginning to take on the status of an absolute empirical generalization. This is not... This is just what all the evidence shows. In other words, the fact that cohabitation is harmful to future marriage is becoming a statistical absolute. A general law, like the law of gravity. Like, that's amazing. And please take note of that final, important, blunt sentence where it says, no positive contribution of cohabitation to marriage has ever been found. Nothing good, not ever, zero evidence of anything good. That, not from Christian studies, just from secular studies. And somehow, statistics show that none of these facts... None of these facts has diminished the rapid growth in cohabitation as an alternate to marriage. I mean, in the face of every analysis that says this is going to be nothing but disastrous on average, it's hard to describe the radical trend toward cohabitation. Like I say, 
1950, all 50 states in America made it illegal, it was against the law, to live with a member of the opposite sex outside of marriage. I'm not saying it was enforced, I'm just saying it was a law on the books. Now that's all long gone history. It would seem, it would seem that knowledge, this is an important principle, knowledge, awareness, study, statistical evidence doesn't prevent people from making bad decisions. This is, this is the flaw behind if we just educate people properly, we will create the perfect world and the perfect society. And all the evidence is in the opposite direction. Our hearts, just as the Bible records, Jeremiah 17, 9, our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Our hearts, not our heads. We can learn computer programs. It's not our heads, our hearts are deceitful, it says, and desperately sick. Those are striking words. Our, our hearts are not just deceitful, they're deceitful above all things. Deceitful above all things, that's the quote, and desperately sick, Jeremiah 17, 9. So in other words, our hearts are deceitful first of all, above all, before anything else. Here's our biggest problem, first in sequence, our hearts deceive us, first of all. And then, this is where the wickedness comes from. This is where the desperate sickness comes from. The moral sickness. It's not talking about physical disease. Deceit is the root. Wickedness is the fruit. Our hearts are deceitful above all things. How's that work? What does a deceitful heart do? If that's the problem, if that's where wickedness comes from, deceitful above all things, desperately wicked or desperately sick. Well, the fallen heart's deceitfulness manifests itself primarily in one thing. Here's how it works. The deceitful heart deludes the will into choices contrary to God's revealed will, with the dream that, in my case, my moral choice will be better for me than God's command. There's the lie, see? My moral choice, in my case, will be better for me than God's revealed will. And while others may not escape the consequences of disobeying God... I will. Perhaps in my case, just in my case, I won't reap what I sow. That's, that's the deceitfulness that leads to desperate sickness. I have three general principles that I want to wrap up this part of the series with. And next week we will conclude, but with a, a totally different uh, approach. One. All cohabitation is destructive to marriage because it reinforces the low commitment ethic that will be brought into any future marriage. It reinforces the low commitment ethic that will be brought into 
any future marriage. This principle is absolute. If you think about it, it makes sense. Why is there cohabitation? Well, the reason there's such a thing as cohabitation in the first place is marriage requires at least one thing that one of the cohabiting partners doesn't like. Otherwise, it wouldn't exist, right? If it weren't different, there'd be no reason for it. The difference is cohabitation... Cohabitation provides an out from at least one thing, something that one of the partners doesn't like about marriage. Cohabitation seems to release the couple from some aspect of marriage that is presently either feared or resented or deemed unnecessary. I don't need a little piece of paper to show that I love so-and-so. So, there's, there's at least one thing that one of the cohabiting partners thinks is fearful, bad, unnecessary. And that's why cohabitation happens. And we're not stupid. We know what cohabitation offers that marriage doesn't. What cohabitation offers that marriage doesn't is an easy out. It's not rocket science, is it? Cohabitation is based on the easy out. There is no legal and there is no religious process to go through. No divorce, no annulment in the Catholic Church. So, if the relationship is great, we continue. If the relationship is unexplainably hard, well, we don't have to wade through this struggle. It seems like you get the best of both worlds. That's why it's the fastest growing social relationship in the world, cohabitation. But there's a catch. There's a catch. The blessing turns into a curse. We saw all the evidence. The option of the easy out, it doesn't just exist as some remote potential possibility. The option of the easy out actually weakens the relationship itself. We've seen the statistic. Cohabitors end their relationships five times more frequently than married couples. Those are the facts. There's only two ways of interpreting that data. First, you can say, well, cohabitors are just more unlucky in their relationships than married people. You can say that. But after a while, as the statistics continue to mount, it's about as logical as saying, you know, heavy smokers are just more unlucky with lung cancer. But we know there's a connection. So the second way to interpret that data is to recognize there's something in the cohabiting relationship itself that tends toward disintegration. And that something is what I call the low commitment 
ethic that's in the very nature of cohabitation. It's the reason cohabitation exists. And my point is simply this. Let me sum up this first point. Cohabitation trains future marriages in the same low commitment ethic. In other words, the easy out becomes the operating system not only of the cohabiting relationship, but of all future relationships, including future marriages. You train yourself in a non-committed way for future marriages. That's the first point. All the evidence points to that. Two. Still with me? Okay. The covenant of marriage provides the commitment mechanism to push back against the easy out reflex of cohabitation. So what I'm starting with here is this basic idea. What I want to say with all of my heart is that marriage deepens love in a way that cohabitation cannot. Is that simple enough? Marriage deepens love in a way that cohabitation cannot. So when there are no outs, no easy outs in the relationship, the couple is forced to work things out. They wouldn't work out if they had the easy option of cost-free quitting. And, And ask anyone who's been married for a while. Here is the surprising payoff for that hard work. When when your marriage commitment forces you to work through things together, you come to love each other more deeply. Do you get it? When the marriage commitment forces you to work difficult things out, you grow to love each other more deeply than if you had had the option of just throwing in the towel. In other words, deep love evaporates in the easy out of cohabitation. So, while couples may feel they marry each other because they, quotes, fell in love, the deeper truth is that marriage is the place where love is forced to mature and deepen and grow up. Love, you can fall in love. You can. I think I did. But the point is, love needs vows to grow. You can fall in love. But love needs vows to grow. And this brings me to a subject I want to talk about for a little while. Comes back to the marriage vows that I read at the beginning of this message. And the idea I want to drive home here is that it matters the way a church states the marriage vows. It's not just a matter of style. I realize, lest I step on anybody's toes, I realize 
that ceremonies, all ceremonies, change with the passing of time. I get it. I haven't been to very many weddings where people pledge their troth to each other. And if you said it, everyone would look at each other and go, what, like, what do they got? You know, what? Terms fall out of use. And that's all fine. It's all fine as long as the meaning of what we are doing at the wedding isn't reduced or the seriousness of the vows isn't diminished. And this erosion of depth, it happens gradually and it happens unintentionally. And the reason is this. Churches always want to please brides and grooms. Especially brides and brides' mothers. We don't want people unhappy with their wedding experience in the church. And as tastes and styles have gradually become less formal, more geared to a kind of a breezy style, then expressing the vow's deepest meaning and grip, small changes in expression start to arise. This isn't really the topic of this teaching, but let me just provide one for instance to make my point. People don't think about it anymore. And that's a tragedy. But there's a world of difference between the minister standing at the front and saying, as I read at the beginning, Dear friends, we've come together in the sight of God and in the presence of these witnesses to join together Don and Rini in the bonds of holy matrimony according to the ordinance of God, the custom of the Christian church and the law of this land, and to pray on their behalf the blessing of God. Now, that isn't usually said quite like that anymore. That may not be the end of the world. Usually, in attempting to be more warm and current, and styles are a little less formal, people don't, as a rule, don't wear suits and ties as much to church. I remember when I first moved here in 1982, you would never, you just would never come up onto the platform of a church on Sunday night unless you had your dark blue suit and a white shirt and a tie. Ladies were all all dressed up and... Well, that's okay. That's changed, and, and that's not a huge deal. I get it. And so with wedding ceremonies as well, the minister will typically get up and, and say something like, Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Don and Rini are so glad that you're here with them to celebrate their special day. Now, my point is not that there's anything wrong with warm and upbeat terminology. My point is, is this just a style change? Or has something else happened unintentionally? Has something important been left out? And I want to argue that something very important has been left out. And because it's been left out of the ceremony, it's also become vacant and foreign in the church's corporate understanding of exactly what is happening in the church that lovely Saturday afternoon at that wedding. I'm wondering if you caught the change. In the second warm contemporary greeting, there are no witnesses. Look again. Dear friends, 
We've come together in the sight of God and in the presence of these witnesses to join together. Hey, Don and Rini are so glad you came to join them for their special day today. Thanks for coming. Who are these people? Who are these people who have rearranged their summer Saturday? Who are these people who have postponed cutting the lawn, showered, put on their best clothes, done their hair? Who are these people who have canceled a trip to the boat or the cottage? Who are these people who are missing a round of golf at the country club? Who are these people who have been patiently waiting for 30 minutes in the church because the bride is late? Who are these people and why are these people here? Well, note, in the contemporary greeting, they're guests. Hey, thanks for coming and joining us for Don and Rini's special day. We're so happy that you're here. But in the formal greeting, they're witnesses. Now, now think about that for a minute. The, the formal greeting recognizes and names an important distinction. Everybody hear this. Guests come to the reception. Witnesses come to the wedding. Why does it matter? Why do we need witnesses at a wedding anyway? Well, because those two people on that beautiful Saturday afternoon when everybody's young and strong and healthy and beautiful, they're getting married for better or for worse. And the odds are things can get a lot worse. And when the worst comes, one or both may change their minds about staying married. Happens all the time. 50% of Christian marriages end in divorce. 50%. And what if they do change their minds? This lovely young Christian couple on Saturday afternoon in the South Sanctuary or in this sanctuary. What if they come to resent the idea of staying together? It happens. The same, the same two people who can't stand being apart one more day can't stand living together one more day. Same two people. And if they come to resent the idea of staying together, there needs to arise a voice. The average size of the wedding, there need to arise perhaps 150 voices or so. Witnesses who will cry out, phone, email, write a letter and say, wait a minute. I was there. I took a bunch of my time at your request to come and to listen to your vows. I was a witness to what you promised. I heard you vow to stay with your spouse until one of you was six feet under. I didn't invite myself to your wedding. You asked me to come. Now don't ask me to pretend I didn't hear you make that promise. Dearly beloved, we are gathered together in the sight of God and in the presence of these witnesses. Witnesses. 
That is saying something that is not even in the same ballpark as, hey, Don and Rini are really happy to have you join them for their special day. Thanks for coming. What a happy time this is going to be. I say it again. Wherever you get married, make sure the minister isn't robbing you of something important and precious at your wedding. Point number three. A biblical rejection of cohabitation. Okay, so we're, we as Christians, we speak up. I mean, that's what this series is about. We speak up. A lot of churches don't. We are. It's not popular. And so we speak up and we say, this isn't right. This is not right. Don't do this. Wait for marriage. So a biblical rejection of cohabitation. What I'm saying here is it will not have any effect. You can tell people it's wrong, don't do it. Mm -mm -mm. You can do that. But it won't have any effect until Christian couples grasp the God-given meaning of sexual intercourse. The universal perception, let me say it this way. The universal perception outside the church and sadly the growing understanding inside the church is this. The meaning of sexual intercourse is the God-given means of expressing love between a man and a woman. And if no one's told you this before, let me surprise you and say, it's not true. That's not true. It is considered the moral high road in this world that sexual activity isn't just spread around like cats in the alley at night. But that we don't give our bodies to someone unless we really, truly love them. This is, this is the, the common understanding of every sitcom, movie, and romance novel in print. All sexual relationships are the expressions of love. And they become romantic and beautiful with Dr. Zhivago playing soothingly in the background because... Pastor Don, we love each other. And it sounds so noble, and it's adhered to so commonly that it's increasingly difficult for Christian people to grasp that this isn't even close to what God says about the meaning of sexual intercourse. It is a basic grade one elementary, ground zero, biblical truth. Cohabitation is always going to be sinful because it can't possibly be otherwise, even in a very loving, monogamous, cohabiting relationship. And that is because sexual intercourse isn't the God-given sign of love. Sexual intercourse is the God-given sign of marriage.
And unless that truth is rubbed deeply and repeatedly into our minds, they're just, you know what? People are, for all sorts of reasons, people are waiting longer and longer to get married. The average age is 27. The average age is 27. And let me tell you this, it's going to take more than cold showers to keep brides and grooms coming down the aisle with their virginity intact at their wedding. What's going to be required is a biblical understanding of what sex is. And sex is the God-given sign of the covenant of marriage. You don't have sex with a person just because you love them. You have sex with a person because you've had marriage covenant. And that's the sign. I'm afraid that there's not a rich understanding of this anymore in the church. I'm afraid that, I'm afraid, I'm afraid that we're losing a generation to, to inane television sitcoms and romantic comedies that mock the biblical covenant of marriage. And we live in a world that is training Christians to laugh at that. And that's why next week, what I want to do, I've gone too long tonight. What I want to do next week is I want to look at biblical principles for understanding why whenever God's covenant of marriage isn't honored, I want to show the different ways in which sin affects our lives. Five different ways. Five different responses to to sin and how the Bible explains why when you live together outside of marriage or you have sex with someone before marriage, it doesn't just affect the sin at that moment. It carries over into something else that affects your marriage. I'm not saying there's not grace for that. Just like I'm not saying there's not grace for divorce. Good night. I, I, that's a given. But that's not what this series is about. And I want to study that in depth next week. Probably take a little bit more time. So uh, if you're not doing anything important, come and join us on Sunday night, okay? Let's pray.